What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar here with a little film spotting fix. We are preparing for our sold out live show. Our 2015 wrap party coming up this Saturday, January 9th at the main stage. But Josh, we didn't want to go too long without giving our listeners some new content. That's what we're going to do here, I suppose, though. This is the first time that we've seen each other since we recorded the roundtable with Scott Tobias and Michael Phillips. Probably makes sense to ask you how your Christmas was, how your New Year's was. Both were fine. Thank you for asking. Just fine. Yeah, it was good. It was great. And I actually got a week off after that. We were out of town for a bit and it was surprisingly movie free. I had fit in a few of our Golden Brick contenders just before Christmas, Duke of Burgundy and Diary of a Teenage Girl. So I'd done my homework on that end, had a lot of my picks for the wrap party set in place. Uh, So I just took a break from Hmm. movies and am really ready, as often happens when I go more than maybe two days without a film to dive back in. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I had a little bit of a break as well. Probably didn't see as many movies as I would have liked or as I should have. I did finally see Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, the 70mm Roadshow You and Scott had a little date, I saw. Scott Tobias and I had a little mandate. It was wonderful at the Music Box this past weekend. We'll have more on Tarantino and our discussion that is coming up about The Hateful Eight on the show in a couple of weeks. I can't say I had too much excitement over the break. New Year's Eve, I was with my wife, and actually we were watching six kids. So I know everyone out there is thinking, Adam, how do I get your life? It's possible. You were bored with your own Yeah, four, I had to take on a couple more a few. for my sister. But the night before, we had our little New Year's Eve outing, took Sarah out for dinner in Chicago, and we went and saw John Oliver just kill it at Chicago Theater. Oh, so I bet he was great. We did have a good night. Let's get to some film talk, though, Josh. This isn't a normal full episode, but we will have a new poll question to share with you, and we'll also spend a few moments paying tribute to a couple of great cinematographers who passed away over the past couple weeks. But first, Charlie Kaufman has brought us inside the head of John Malkovich. He gave us twin Nicholas Cages and created the largest theater set in history. In his latest, he brings us to... Cincinnati. Oh, and don't forget the puppet sex. What is it to be human? What is it to ache? What is it to be alive? Each person you speak to has had a day. Some of the days have been good, some bad. Each person you speak to has had a childhood. Each has a body. Each body has eggs. Look for what is special about each individual. Focus on that. Remember, there is someone out there for everyone. Such is the whirlwind that is the end of the year movie rush, Adam, that we're just getting to a full review of Anomalisa now. After you already named it as one of your top 10 films of 2015 on our recent roundtable show, you had good company there. Michael Phillips had it on his list, and it very nearly made both Scott Tobias's and mine. So there's a little drama in if we liked the latest existentially fraught brainchild of Charlie Kaufman. The question is really what enthralled us so much about it. So you tell me. Is it the stop-motion animation, which Kaufman guided alongside co-director Duke Johnson? 
was the vocal performances, mainly by David Thewlis in the lead role of Michael Stone, a customer service specialist on a business trip who's come to believe, quote, everything is boring. And also the performance of Jennifer Jason Lee as Lisa, a convention attendee who momentarily gives him a reason to live. Or was it the deeply Kaufman sense of mordant humor, in which all is meaningless, but dryly, funnily so? Or is it simply the combination of these factors, along with other things you might want to get into, that made Anomalisa one of the best films of 2015? I think you covered it all, Josh, so review's over. There's got to be more. (laughs) There might be a little bit more, but it hadn't really hit me until... You just said it, that after naming it my number nine film of the year, and it probably could have been higher, now I feel extra pressure to try to justify that pick. I had less pressure when I was just making a few comments about it during the roundtable, but it really is a combination of all those things that you talked about. And I think the one overarching umbrella I might put on it is to simply say, and I wonder if you agree with me here, that it was just a unique cinematic experience. During that roundtable, I talked about picking the movies for my list that ultimately surprised and delighted me the most, borrowing that phrase from one of our special guests, Ryan Johnson. And how can you not be surprised and delighted when you're watching something that was unlike any movie that came out last year, and frankly, is maybe unlike any movie I've ever seen because of that stop-motion animation, but with the attention to detail, the fact that they made it so correct for lack of a better word, to the human experience. The way these puppets move, the way the animation is rendered is such that I haven't seen anything like it before, but then there are some touches we'll get into in terms of that animation where they could have made some choices to make it even more polished and actually deliberately left some of the seams showing, literally, in the case of these puppets, left some of the seams showing, I think, to really great effect. So there's real artistry behind every aspect of this film, and I think it's all those things. It's the voice work, It's that deadpan sense of humor of Charlie Kaufman, the performances that we get really from just three people here. Tom Noonan kind of vocalizes everybody in this world that we're seeing completely through the perspective of, completely through the lens of Michael, the main character who's voiced by David Thewlis. And then, as you said, we meet Jennifer Jason Leigh later in the film. But that perspective right from the beginning is established. I love the opening of the film because we hear audio first. Black screen, people having sort of banal day-to-day conversation. They might be on a bus. We don't know. And then we see a plane flying through the air. And it stays on the plane for quite a while. As we're hearing more chatter, we put it together that this is the conversation probably happening on that plane. But then what does the camera do? The plane disappears for a moment. The camera pulls back to reveal Michael sitting on an airplane looking out the window. And right from the beginning, it's established We don't really know what world we're in. We thought for a second that it was that plane, that the characters were having those conversations, but then it could have been all along Michael's. There's sort of a split world happening right from the beginning of this movie. Were we in fact seeing his plane or was he watching another plane? Maybe that was also descending at a similar time into the Cincinnati airport. So right away, Kaufman and Duke Johnson are challenging your perspective. And actually, that transition is doubled later in the film where he is shown the door of the hotel manager And as he turns to it, he's then seen coming through that door. So there are these little touches like that that I think really put you in the head of this character right from the very beginning of the film. And it's a pretty weird, scary at times place to be. 
Yeah, I mean, there are touches of horror in here for sure. And the camera pulls back, I think, one more time in that opening scene, though you may not realize it until about halfway through the film. It it pulls fully inside Michael Stone's head. And the first clue that it's doing that is probably this decision to have Tom Noonan voice every other character who Mm -hmm. speaks to him, which it took me a while to pick up on the first time I saw the picture. Yeah, me too. And I was trying to figure out, why do they sound the same? They all sound the same, even the men and the women. Yeah, Yeah, and and then, but it's just one touch that makes you realize this is a guy undergoing, likely undergoing a serious mental breakdown of some sort and is experiencing it. We're experiencing it right alongside him in his head. And as far as it being a unique movie experience, that may sound familiar for people who have seen other Charlie Kaufman films. Generally, that's what he specializes in, men having some sort of personal breakdown like this. But to the choice to do this as a stop motion picture sets it apart, not only from a Kaufman film, but you're right in the animation itself is very different. I'm a huge fan of stop motion animation. It's very different than, say, something like the Shaun the Sheep movie that was out, obviously, but it's also very different from the work of Henry Selleck or something like Box Trolls. It creates its own. It's a dollhouse aesthetic. And I say that because the attention even to the furniture is so precise and the lamps here glow uh, with this. uh, It is realism. It's definitely realism they're going for, which makes it all that jarring when something utterly unreal happens, including physically to Michael at one point where we where I think that's where the break became confirmed Mm -hmm. for me that I won't give away because it is such a jarring uh, moment, though it is it is hinted at in the stitches and the seams you see in these puppets. And so you're just constantly on edge here. And thank goodness for Kaufman's streak of humor for for the way he can, you know, just ring laughs out of this discussion early on between Michael Stone and the taxi driver about the chili in Cincinnati. Just going back, it, it at once captures the banal nature of human interaction that does make you want to just throttle yourself when you have to sit through it. But it's, it's also very funny that the cab driver also calls the zoo a zoo size. The Cincinnati Zoo is zoo size. He keeps saying as if that's a plus. Or, and, and just touches like that provide a little bit of relief to us from the full weight of Michael Stone's depression, which is what the movie really bears down upon us. And what I love about the film is the way it works as a retort to that attitude in its creativity. So this guy is in a dreary career. He's a he's a customer service expert with a book, a bestseller. He takes no real pleasure in that. His job seems to be going to cities to speak at these conventions. He has no connection to his family when he calls them back at home. He hears the same voice coming back to him, and he's not connected to them at all. So this is a guy who's really given up on life. Yet a movie that is this creative is the very thing that gives us sustenance Mm -hmm. and helps carry us through. So... No world can be as boring as Michael Stone believes if Anomalisa is in it, basically. (laughs) And so in a weird way, the movie ends up being hopeful without you having to find it in the narrative hope of this main character. Yeah. It's interesting because there has been a lot of talk that I've picked up on around this film involving that word depression. And I think it's very accurate. I don't think you can watch this film and not think that he is going through some kind of situation. He even verbalizes that at one point, that he's... He's having trouble and that he's had some kind of mental break. But that said, I think that for me, what really stood out, and this is what I alluded to during the roundtable a little bit in terms of what that Michael Stone character represents about the human condition, about 
all of us to some extent, is that this movie seems to be fundamentally about ego. And it seems to be about this desire, this fundamental human desire, I think, to see yourself as unique. And this delusion he's having, which if you know anything about Charlie Kaufman going back at least as far as Synecdoche, New York, where he loves to play with words, a word like Synecdoche, mm -hmm. playing off of Schenectady, and also the main character in that film, who Philip Seymour Hoffman portrays, is named Caden Cattard, and there's a Cattard delusion, which is a real thing that some people experience where they believe that they are dead. If you've seen that movie, you know that that makes sense that he would be inspired. And I heard him recently, I think it was on Fresh Air, where Charlie Kaufman actually said he likes to read about delusions and disorders. And it clearly inspires his work because the hotel Michael Stone is staying at is called the Fregoli. And it turns out there is a Fregoli delusion, which is a rare disorder where a person thinks that different people are, in fact, one person. OK, so that's fascinating in and of itself. I've never heard of that delusion. But then what is he using it for? How is he taking that disorder and using it on screen. And I think, again, getting back to this idea of ego, we all want to believe that we are special. And how can you be more special than if every single other person around you is exactly the same? You cannot distinguish them as individuals. You're the only one who's an individual. And when he meets Lisa, and he is drawn to her because she's the only one who has her own voice. She doesn't sound like Tom Noonan. She, in fact, sounds like Jennifer Jason Lee. It makes sense that he would connect with her because the one unique man in this whole world has found the one unique woman. And there is something inherently romantic about that, I suppose, even if I don't know that this movie could be described as romantic throughout. So what's his nightmare? And we see this play out a little bit throughout the course of this film, is that if they're the only other people in the world, then everyone else is committed to keeping them apart. Everyone else is committed to their unhappiness. It becomes this sort of paranoid delusion almost on his part. I think it is an exaggerated version of what we all want to believe, like I said, that we're special. And it goes back to Synecdoche too a little bit, this notion of us all being the lead players in our own plays, right? Only here, it's gone to such an extent that he doesn't even see the other people around him as individual characters. They're not individuals at all. They're this monolithic glob that basically is out to either disturb him or to serve him in some way, right? During that nightmare, there's that moment where everybody wants him. Everybody is drawn to him in that way. So even though there's a lot about Michael Stone, I certainly cannot relate to. And I wouldn't say he's a figure that any of us would aspire to be like. As you said, he seems to be leading a pretty dreary existence. Nonetheless, I did feel a lot of empathy for him, and I did feel a lot of connection to him for those reasons. Well, and what he tells Lisa early on is everyone is one person but you and me. And so that, that speaks mm -hmm. to what you're talking about and also speaks to what I think the movie captures really well is the idea of infatuation and escape. It's, it's not romantic, I don't think, even though there are some very sweet moments between them, including this explicit puppet sex scene we should probably spend some time talking about. I know we touched on it very briefly during the top 10 roundtable, but really it's not romantic. It's infatuation that, that the movie captures. And Jennifer Jason Leigh's performance is so crucial to that. I mean, it, she's the MVP of this picture to me because until she showed up, it was just starting to grind the same gears a bit too much for me, just a little bit. Um, I could easily get lost in the animation and would have followed it through all the way. Um, but she brings this, and narratively, this is what she's supposed to do, the sense yeah. of life, the sense of newness, of vitality, but also a, a distinct personality. These puppets, for all the realism I'm talking about in terms of the decor and the lighting and the furniture, the puppets 
have some elements of realism, but they're always clearly puppets. And yeah. so you're not going to become connected to them as people, for sure, the way you might in other stop-motion animated films. But the vocal work by Jennifer Jason Lee, the way she gives Lisa, she, she almost has this initial outburst of honesty where she starts talking before she's thinking and then pulls back a little bit and gets self-deprecating. And there's something uh, just so, you know, appealing about that in her and how they play off each other. And I think that is captured in the sex scene, which I saw at the Toronto International Film Festival, one of the biggest theaters, full house. And you could tell people were like, how far is this going to go? What are we watching? How did it goes all the way? How did we get here? Yeah. And it goes all the way. And what that does is pushes us way past the veneer of physical intimacy that most movie sex scenes are interested in Mm -hmm. and dressing up that veneer into a real area of tenderness and vulnerability that, again, despite all of the fake elements it required to capture this, just hits a truism that few movies have. Yeah, you're right. That tenderness, that vulnerability, that raw intimacy is what makes it uncomfortable to watch. And I think it's uncomfortable because... There's a part of all of us that wants to reject that. But also, when you are watching it with a crowd of people, you become more self-aware. I saw it at a screening where there were two other people in the room. So it was a completely different vibe where it was very scattered and you weren't having that same kind of self-awareness. But it did provoke some of those same feelings in me, nevertheless, because it is what sex is like when there's no montage cut to music. There's no cuts that are alighting all the awkwardness. And this also is fundamentally a movie about all of the awkward human encounters that we experience. Definitely. Certainly on a business trip, which this is. I mean, down to the door key not working, which mm-hmm. is really funny. Even in his nightmare scene, right, right. the same thing repeats itself. <laughs> the same process where he only gets in on the fourth or fifth try. But ordering room service, whatever it might be, the cab. The ride up the elevator. The ride up the boy. elevator. You know, we have all been there to some extent. So the movie, as you would expect from Charlie Kaufman, is very much dealing with that. But what's ironic a little bit is how raw and intimate it is and how uncomfortable it is, despite the fact that that sex scene is mostly constructed with long shots. We get a couple yeah, cuts true. to the bed, but for the most part, it's a long shot from the window showing the whole bedroom, and you're just seeing a bed and the two naked puppet bodies on it, and that's it. And so seeing those naked bodies in full, and again, not cut to any of those things, any of those conventions that we're used to, that's what makes it so jarringly real and a little bit uncomfortable, but a great experience too. That's one of those moments from the year in cinema I felt so fortunate to have. And you touched on the infatuation angle here, this fledgling relationship, what brews between Lisa and Michael. And one of those moments of fundamental truth for me that I only hinted at during our top 10 of the year discussion was the reaction the next day after that. And I don't want to get into it here because I want people to have the same moment as I had watching these two characters, but how quickly his perspective on her changes, how quickly he falls back into his normal, jaded view of the world and his view of the world in which he is the supreme (laughs) figure in it and there's no one else who is truly unique like him and everyone is in essence conspiring against him it all turns that quickly and i think it's because you see it start to happen you see it really manifest itself when they're discussing 
where they go from here. That night was their moment to be free. She's on a business trip herself. She's going to act unlike herself a little bit, maybe do some crazy things she wouldn't normally do. He's going to have this fling with her, this escape from his everyday life. But the next day, when it gets back to reality, as much as we get reality in this film and in a Charlie Kaufman film, all of a sudden, everybody falls back into their neuroses. Well, and the way they chart that, which we probably shouldn't give away, the filmmakers chart that, is is so wonderfully horrifying because yeah. that's where there is an element of horror film in it. As I was experiencing it, you, you, you're you so wrapped up. You're like, oh, no, no, don't let this start happening. But you also understand it. I mean, this is a guy you get the feeling, uh, Michael Stone, who lives in that ultimate ego moment, which was the night before, mm -hmm. or the high or this ultimate low of depression or however you want to name it, where everything is boring or everything is meaningless. And there's no middle modulation. There's no, I don't know if there's any contentment, any sense of contentment in a Charlie Kaufman movie, which no. is maybe one of the saddest things about them because they can capture those lows so truly and effectively and maybe give us momentary highs. But what his characters always seem to miss, and especially so here, is is just that middle groove um, where where we hopefully usually live, where reality resides. Um, and instead, this movie gives us a, a lot of those lows. Yeah, it really does. That said, it's still often a very funny movie. There's so a funny. trip he makes to a toy shop to uh -huh. buy something for his son that is funny enough in itself. The joke really does pay off later when he actually gives that gift to his son. There are lots of little moments like that and little touches, too, like when he goes to order room service. Again, one of those traditional sort of awkward moments that happens when you step into a hotel room if you are ordering room service and you look down at the buttons and he sees like six buttons <laughs> yes. that all look like they'd all be for room service and you have that moment of recognition going yeah sometimes I do pick up the phone and I'm just trying to call the front desk and I don't know which one I'm supposed to hit the diagram isn't very clear but of course it also makes sense Josh that all six buttons probably would look exactly the same to him since he sees the world in these very split ways. There's a clear dichotomy and it's sort of like everything represents food the same way all these people are exactly the same to him. So I like little moments like or that. Or the nightmarish, it's in his nightmare trip to the hotel manager's office, which is for some reason in the basement and takes up the entire floor of right. the hotel and has a, a pit meeting area and he has to ride the golf cart to get from one end to the other. Just the absurdity that he's experiencing there, that that's hilarious too. Yeah. And I think it gets back to, if you watch it, I don't know that anyone would come away from this film trying to figure out why they decided to do it with puppets, with the stop-motion animation. I think there's a real practical function to it, but I think it does so well serve the metaphorical level of this condition. I think it's very easy, and I'm, I'm trying to get at this, and I don't know if I articulated it well, but it's very easy to say, well, he's depressed, and this is a portrayal of someone going through a type of depression, or he's suffering from this kind of delusion. I think there's something more metaphorical going on here in terms of that as I'm saying, egomania. And it doesn't even necessarily mean ego, like we're all vain. He really thinks he's better than everyone else, though I think that's part of it. But it's also just that idea of being able to get out of your own head and everything that comes with that. Even if you could somehow pull off this device, though, this notion of everybody sounding the same, if you could somehow have different actors mm -hmm. but have the same voice coming from all their mouths, I don't know that we as viewers could ever really accept that. I think we would instantly be too distracted by it and we would tune out 
this version of this world as anything resembling reality whatsoever. But the animation takes that out of the equation right from the very beginning. It doesn't it immediately, feel like sinking this No, way. exactly. It immediately puts us in a space where we know we're outside of the realm of everyday reality, allows us to accept this world that is so close to the real thing, but then there are those little insights that are constantly reminding you that there is some artificiality to it. And I've read a little bit about how the puppet work was done here, and the puppets typically have these seams where they can interchange the faces or body parts very easily. And they clearly decided here, Johnson and Kaufman, to leave those in Mm -hmm. for a reason. And it's that constant reminder of their artifice. And it almost makes me think, as you're watching it, because this is kind of headspace you get into following Michael around here, that it's almost that the seams are there for them to see, for the puppets to be aware of, because it's that kind of a nightmare where the lines are there so that the characters have to constantly be reminded of their own fakeness, of their own artificiality, and they can't escape it. And that does manifest itself at one point during his nightmare. So this notion that everything is a construct and those seams showing remind us of that very consistent with the Charlie Kaufman universe. Well, there's a loss of control, too, which uh, if they recognize that they're puppets at any level, then there's a recognition that they're not in control of their destiny or their fate or or who they are even. And yeah, you definitely get a sense of that, both uh, just in the story itself and the entire stop motion aesthetic. Anomalisa is currently out in limited release, just opening in Chicago this weekend, Friday, January 8th. But it has been out in New York and L.A. and hopefully will expand to more cities. If you get a chance to see the film and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Out on the street, their bayonets are fixed and uh, 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 they know it's for real in a real riot in a city. And here we know it's more or less a uh, it's a it's a war game. How's it going so far? That I couldn't tell you. I'm the enemy. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't take a few moments here on the show to pay tribute to Haskell Wexler. You heard a scene there from his film Medium Cool 1968, a great Chicago movie and a great hybrid of the documentary and narrative format. His only narrative film that he directed Though he made some other documentaries, of course, legendary as a cinematographer. He won the Oscar in 1968 for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He also shot In the Heat of the Night, which I love. And he won his second Oscar for Hal Ashby's Bound for Glory. Did other stuff for John Sayles, too. Secret of Rowan Inish, Silver City, and another film I'm a big fan of, Mate One. He passed away at the age of 93 on December 27th. Sayles actually shared these words about Haskell Wexler. I remember turning the TV on and seeing an empty backyard in black and white and thinking, Haskell Wexler shot this. Sure enough, Liz Taylor and Richard Burton sloshed out into the scene in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Just something about the depth, the layers of light, very natural, but very alive. And here's another quote from the New York Times obituary. Wexler was known for his signature use of contrasts and shadows. He was colorblind, so he worked differently from others in his field, especially after color became dominant. He was notoriously cantankerous as a collaborator and the LA Times obit featured a quote from him pretty famous quote from him where he said I don't think there's a movie that I've been on that I wasn't sure I could direct it better and as you may imagine that led to some battles along the way he actually got fired by Francis Ford Coppola from the conversation Milos Forman fired him from One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and even with those misses in terms of films he didn't get a chance to work on there are so many others that we get to enjoy where we really get to see his eye and his talent shine through. Unfortunately, not the only legendary cinematographer we've lost over the past week to 10 days, though. Vilmos Zygmunt died on 
New Year's Day. Hungarian-born cinematographer won an Oscar for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was a Sacred Cow review here on Film Spotting a while back. He was nominated for The Deer Hunter, The River in 1984, and more recently, The Black Dahlia. He passed away at age 85. Not a fan of that Brian De Palma film, but it is a fun movie to look at. Well, how about being known as the cinematographer of a movie that has a famous light show climax as Close yeah. Encounters does. I mean, that's what people remember it for, as, as well as the scene at the railroad crossing um, with uh, the light work there. I mean, just amazing stuff. Yeah, he did work with a lot of heavyweight directors over the decades, especially in the 70s. Spielberg, Scorsese, De Palma, George Miller, Michael Cimino, of course, on The Deer Hunter. He shot some Woody Allen's more recent stuff. And then we go back to Robert Altman, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Long Goodbye, one of my all-time favorite films, really. And... How about one of my other all-time favorite films? A little gem called Real Genius from 1985 with Val Kilmer. Yes, Vilma Sigmund shot that film as well. So we'll link to more information about both Wexler and Sigmund in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you're not already familiar with their work. A couple other notes we did want to share. The live show, as we touched on, is coming up, recording this weekend. It will be the two of us. We'll have some guests as well. We'll have some music. It should be lots of fun, and it will air the following weekend. Sold out. Sold out actually about two weeks before the event, so doesn't get better than that. Thanks to everyone for jumping on that so quickly. Really encouraging. It is. And we also asked you to participate a little bit in the live show by having you go to filmspotting.net and pick your winner for the 2015 Golden Brick Award, our overlooked movie of the year. Really more our movie that flew under the radar a little bit. It's an indie, non-mainstream movie that is made by a new or emerging filmmaker and also really shows a unique artistic vision and ambition. And we are going to announce the winner at the live show, and you will get to know whose life will be forever altered by becoming a Golden Brick winner. Your vote did count. We had our all-star jury weigh in and i'm excited to share the winner with our live audience and with everyone listening via podcast or radio as we said next week you're going to hear the live show we're recording this weekend the week after that it's our plan to dig into tarantino's latest epic the hateful eight a film i didn't get a chance to see before we recorded our top 10 of the year show do you want to tell me now or should we save it for that show whether it would have been on your list Let's save it. Okay. I'm going to make everyone wait a little bit. We will also talk about The Revenant, and we were going to probably skip both of these films. I mean, people know how we both feel about The Revenant if they listen to that show. It was in your top 10. It's nowhere near my top 10, and it's been out now for a little while. We were going to just blow right past it. We were going to let it go, and we weren't even sure that we were going to get to The Hateful Eight, but you actually came up with a little ruse to get us to talk about both films and maybe, maybe Son of Saul as well, if we can fit that one in. So we're going to wrap these movies in kind of a larger thematic blanket and try to get at that topic. Do you want to say anything about that at this time? Well, listeners could maybe track down the Anne Hornaday article that made me think of it. She actually is critical of both The Hateful Eight and The Revenant, primarily for the way they emphasize suffering physical suffering and whether that should be something that's regarded as a, a high goal of art as these two films seem to have been embraced. So I thought it would be interesting because uh, although I want to revisit The Hateful Eight and see where I really fall on it, I'm not as opposed to it as you are to The Revenant. But The Revenant being on my top 10 list, I think her article posits a challenge that's good for both of the films that we like, and it might be interesting to respond to them and offer our defenses. So I definitely recommend checking out that Anne Hornaday article. It ran at the Washington Post. 
I haven't actually read the article yet. I accepted the challenge just based on your description of it. But just based on your description, I'm not sure I accept her premise, at least with regard to the hateful eight. So we'll see part of the conversation as I really do dive into that. The Revenant, I said, came out over Christmas, but that's going wide this weekend. Of course, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, directed by last year's Best Director winner for Birdman, Alejandro González Iñárritu. And the top five on that show will be our picks for the best performances of 2015. We told you we were not done with 2015, even though we're calling it the rap party. We find ourselves still going back into some of our favorites from that year early into January. And that brings us to this week's poll question. We're asking you to name your favorite lead performance of 2015. We haven't had a chance to discuss this. I like to have these little on-air production meetings, Josh, Sam okay. and I, behind the scenes with the poll question, had settled on just focusing on the best lead performance by an actress in 2015, especially as I've been going on and on about how many good ones there were this year. So let's just leave out the men completely and talk about the actresses. Then Sam decided, well, it's tying in with our top five performances of the year. During those lists now, we combine male and female. We don't separate them Mm -hmm. into separate lists. So why separate the poll? And he's put together a list with a little bit of input for me that includes either women or the women and men together, and you have to pick your favorite lead performance. Which one do you prefer, Josh? I will go with whatever you like best. Well, I'm honored. Let's throw them all together. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. And I think we'll go ahead and include all of them. There's one near the end in brackets, one actress I think we'll leave out. I don't see her faring all that well in this poll, even though we're big fans of her performance. But other than that, why don't you go ahead and read the options. Best lead performance in 2015. Leonardo DiCaprio in the aforementioned The Revenant, Matt Damon in The Martian, Michael Fassbender in Steve Jobs, Michael B. Jordan in Creed. Then for the women, we have Brie Larson in Room, Rooney Mara in Carol, Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn, and Charlize Theron in Mad Max Fury Road. Of course, you could also go with other four men, four women, and we didn't separate them that way. That was actually in alphabetical order. The men all happen to be stacked near the top there, alphabet-wise. So we want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Is Kate Blanchett just going to run away with other? Probably. Probably. And I'm surprised that she was left off because Sam and I had talked about the fact that I was even open to including Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett together as one option because it is hard to separate. There's been a lot of talk about how they may well, split votes. that would votes. really take it. Yeah, that probably would give it to them, but... One of these performances we still have not seen. As of this taping, we still have not watched the Brie Larson film Room, much to the horror and dismay of many of our listeners who couldn't believe that in that roundtable with four critics, not one person brought up that movie. But as I mentioned on Twitter, Scott and Michael like Room, but don't love it. Wasn't really close to their top 10, and we've been avoiding it for whatever reason. So I'm finally going to break down before the rap party and see it, and I'll be able to vote in this poll. We'll see if Brie Larson really deserves to be at the top of the list. I have more work to do. I still haven't caught up with Brooklyn or Creed. Oh, my goodness. I know. So you're, you're really shouldn't out be of the running here. No, you're exempt. <laughs> you don't get to participate in this poll question. I hope our listeners, Josh, have been better students of film this year than you. Vote now again at filmspotting.net. And if you do leave a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. That is it for this little fix for Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.